Our Old Testament reading this morning is a responsive reading from the seventh chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Please join with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own heart, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. The New Testament reading is from the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in the 41st verse. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Turn to the scripture we read with Blake just a few minutes ago from Luke chapter 19, beginning looking specifically at verses 41 through 48. If you're visiting, we've been in a study for some time, in fact, two years in the gospel according to Luke. Why are we there? We're looking at the incarnation of the Son of God. God became flesh. We're looking at the life that this Lord from glory lived. The Son of God and the Son of Man. The incredible life that he lived and what he accomplished. Why did he come? What did he do? 
What was accomplished? What was his purpose? Where is he now? We've been answering all those questions. This morning, we look at Jesus coming to his church. Jesus coming to the temple. Before we do, let's pray together. Our Father, we come in this part of our worship as priests together. We're under your command to take your word, to take the gospel to the world around us, to Fayette County. But Father, you've also called us to be priests. You've called us to come before you for the world around us. Praying as priests for others. Our Father, we thank you for how you've answered our prayers. How you've blessed us in this ministry. It's a joy to come to you and speak to you. Our Father, we pray this morning for Janet Canale. She has surgery this week. We pray that you would bless that surgery. That you would keep her in that surgery. Protect her. We pray that it will do what it's designed to do, and that there will be no complications. Bless her. Our Father, we pray that there would be a great calm in her soul as she comes to this. We pray for Jim Bennington, Father. We thank you that you have placed him in a place where he's safe, where he's been helped. We pray that, that Father, his time there would be profitable and that you would strengthen him physically. But, Father, we pray most of all that he would be, be, would be reminded of his faith. That, Father, he would be comforted. That he would know he's in your hands. We pray for Sheila Jeffrey's family, Father, for especially for Tom and the girls in April. We pray that you would powerfully comfort them and bless them in this time. We pray for Vicki Anderson. We thank you, Father, that how she has tolerated these treatments, how she's been blessed during this time, and we pray that they will be effective and bring healing to her. And Father, that's what we pray for ourselves now as we come to your word. We pray that you would apply your word to our lives. Give us ears to hear this morning from the youngest to the oldest. Our Father, I cannot speak so that it will make any difference in our lives. But we've heard your voice in this room. You've spoken. And you've changed us and you've continued to change us. Father, this morning, we earnestly pray together that we would hear your voice. Father, change us. Maybe some of us for the first time. But Father, continue to change us, to grow us.
Our Father, we pray when we leave here in a few minutes that we will know we have heard your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus comes to his church this week in preparation for this message, I was forced to ask, what if Jesus came to Fayette County? What if he came to Fayette County and came to Christ's prayers on a Sunday morning? What would he do? Would he react like he did that day in Jerusalem? In reality, that's what happens every Lord's Day. We focus on that. We've already spoken of that this morning. Jesus said, where two or three gather in his name. He said, where two or three gather in my name, I will be in their midst. He's never missed a meeting. So he's here this morning. I want us to look back to his going to the temple in Jerusalem. Right after the triumphal entry. Right after he spoke these words of judgment. And see what happened then and learn from it. First, I want you to see a crucial connection as we look at these verses. Go back to the verses we read last week, verse 40, 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on that day the things that make for, that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And in verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. The triumphal entry that we read last week, the prophetic words about the fall of Jerusalem, and the violent scene in the temple, they're all connected. They're inextricably entwined. Luke meant it to be that way. They're, they're latched together. They're related. Why was the nation perishing? Why was Jerusalem going to fall? That's what Jesus was saying. The problem was not in the palace. The problem was not with the state house. The problem was at the temple. Oh, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What would bring them peace was not a different political party. What would bring them peace was not a military revolution that would throw out the Romans. What would bring them peace should have been found in the temple. That's why he went immediately to the temple. Jesus went from describing the destruction of Israel to personally attacking the exact source of Israel's debilitation. Jesus made a crucial connection between the corruption of Israel's faith and the decay in the land. They were intertwined. The great evangelist and preacher and teacher, A.W. Tozer, said it this way, quote, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will show that no people has ever risen above its religion, above its faith. What was Tozer saying? The same thing that this passage was saying. Same thing Jesus was saying. As the temple goes, so goes the nation. What we become as a nation, what we become as a city, what we become as a family, applying it to our own families, is not first dependent upon schools. It's not first dependent upon government. 
It's not first dependent upon jobs. What we become will be determined by the faith that indwells our souls. The conviction of creed. That is why Jesus went directly to the temple. Do you understand? He speaks of the judgment. The king has entered the city. He speaks of the judgment that's coming to the city. And he goes directly to the temple. And saying this is related, inextricably entwined with the destruction. Israel was sick because her temple was infected and contaminated. We can say it like this. If the people of God are for real, if the church of Jesus Christ is alive and vibrant and genuine, she will affect the culture and society around her. If the people of God, if the church of Jesus Christ is not affecting and changing the culture and society around her, you can be sure that the society, the secular society and the culture around the church is affecting and changing the church. You look at the history of the church in our land in the last 50 years, in the last 75 years, in the last 30 years, and you will see that either the church has remained, individual churches and denominations have remained stalwart, fixed on God's word, preaching God's word, teaching God's word, being changed by God's word, and are thus changing the culture around them. Or you see that the church, entire denominations, single churches, have been molded. Their message has been molded. Their lives have been molded by the secular culture around them, and they've forsaken God's word. The question that we must ask ourselves at Christ's press, are we changing the world around us? Are we affecting Fayette County for Christ? Or is the world around us changing us? Clarence Hall was a, uh, a correspondent in World War II. He wrote an unusual piece about what happened in a single village in Okinawa when the Allied forces came to that island. There was a town named Shimabuk in Okinawa. Thirty years before that, Two missionaries on their way to China had stopped in Okinawa, had stopped at the village of Shimabu. They had talked to two men. One was named Shosi Kaina and the other was his brother Moyang. They spoke to these two men about Christ, about the gospel. These two men were converted. This was just over several days. They were converted. They left these two men with a Bible, those missionaries, and went on to Japan. Now fast forward, for 30 years, they had no contact, Kaina and his brother had no contact with any other Christian missionary. But they made the Bible come alive in their village. They taught other villagers until men and women and children all through their little town had become Christians. Kaina became the head man of the village and Moyan became the chief teacher. The Bible was actually read in their schools. The precepts of the Bible were law in the village. When the American army came to Shimabu, of course, they were looking for hostile forces that were still embedded there. 
with guns. They came in force. And here these two old men stepped forward, Kina and Moyon, and bowed low and began to speak. They were welcoming the soldiers as Christians. The, 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 the soldiers were flabbergasted. They didn't know what was happening. They came, they, they sent for the chaplain, they sent for the intelligence officers. They were astounded at what they found in that village. They found spotless homes. They found a gentility and education that they didn't find anywhere else on the island. And Clarence Hall was profoundly affected as he wrote about this. He spoke of how Scripture, how Jesus Christ had shaped and formed that culture in that little town. That, that is a microcosm of what we're talking about. What was it Tozier said? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you realize that in your family? Do we realize that? Do you realize the significance of Christ Presbyterian in that? We want our children to go to the best schools. We want, our, we want them to be a success in their work. We want our families to be, to, to have all these blessings, the greatest blessing that they can have. What this is saying, the greatest blessing that we can have is a genuine faith in the God who is there. That that's what shapes us. When I was visiting Inverness, Scotland, uh, I'd been there several times. But on this particular visit, I saw something I'd never seen. And I'd been in the, in, I'd, I'd been down in the city area. But on this time, I was out walking. And I ended up on a hill that was looking over the downtown area. Big building, old bank buildings, old business buildings. And, and some of them over 100 years old. And I'd never seen this. High upon those buildings, etched in the brick, etched in the stone, were Bible verses left there by a previous godly generation. And it was, it, was, it was profound to watch. Here were these people walking, driving down those streets, walking on the sidewalk, going into those buildings. They had no idea that here, etched in stone, were these great verses from Scripture. Years ago, generations ago, Christ's church in Scotland affected every fabric of that culture. And now, this secular culture where three or four percent of the culture actually goes to church, they, they are completely oblivious to what's been written on those buildings. You see, somewhere a generation forgot and another generation forgot and they can't remember. And what's, what's really sad is at the same time, the culture has etched its influence on the church and made the church like the culture 
instead of the church changing the culture. You see, a, you look at this passage and you see a crucial connection between what's going to happen in Jerusalem and the temple. Secondly, as you look at this, you see an immoral irreverence. Look at verse 46. It's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. There was graft and gouging and exploitation taking place at the temple. It wasn't down in the marketplace. It was in the actual temple. You see, when pilgrims came to Jerusalem, they needed a sacrifice. They had been traveling. Where would they find an animal suitable for the altar? Bulls, lambs, and doves were being doves were being sold in the temple, in the outer court. Well, who could sell there? Did farmers just bring there that they could sell these sacrifices? Sacrifices where we know now that sacrifices were being sold in the temple at ten times their worth. A pilgrim that did bring his lamb or did bring a dove for sacrifice. The priest could tell him, I'm sorry, that animal is not suitable for sacrifice. You'll have to go buy one over there. Not only that, this was the time of Passover. This was Passover week. There would be a quarter of a million additional people in Jerusalem, most of them pilgrims. They came from all over the Mediterranean world. And so there had to be, they had to have local currency in order to buy these sacrifices. And so they had a currency exchange right there in the temple with high exchange rates. That was what was happening. This was supposed to be a center for worship for Israel. It was to be a place of repentance, a place of confession of sin, a place of worship. It wasn't just a sin of avarice and greed that caused the anger. It was near reverence. It was a desecration. It was a sacrilege. It was a profanity. It was impiety. It was blasphemy. Here was a pilgrim waiting to buy a lamb of sacrifice who was to represent the lamb that God would one day bring. And Jesus saw this. And it was profanity in the temple. It was profane. It was ugly. We want to say, well, we're not, we're not doing that. And this is not, please don't take this and apply it to, you see in some church, some teenagers doing car washes in order to pay for something. Don't think about that. Some, you know, you see a book table out there where we sell books. We'll give those books away. Uh, you know, it, that's not what this is about. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. When you see when you see an evangelist, a so-called evangelist on television, now I'm not going to, to mention names here. When you see an evangelist on television and you realize it's not the gospel, you realize that, that they're not preaching Christ crucified. They're not teaching that we're sinners who need a Savior. And you see it's focused all on money. That's serious. You do realize that the world looks at that and thinks that that's what we're like. That that's what the Bible says. Those, those evangelists, 
so-called evangelists are butchers. The Puritans, the Puritans looked at such things and said, when men were denying the faith, wore the robes and denied the faith, they were said, they're butchers of souls. That's what Jesus understood. This was profane. We've seen an entire, I've seen in my lifetime, I've left one denomination that proved to be apostate, that proved that went to the, you know, that was ordaining men, sending them out to churches to preach. Sending them out to churches to preach. And they didn't believe in the incarnation. They didn't believe the Son of God became flesh. They didn't believe that, that we needed a Savior to die for our sins. They didn't believe in the basic sinfulness that the Bible teaches. And they changed the entire message. And they began, they were shaped by the culture around them. They were simply echoing what the culture around them said. We think that can't happen. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. We've never walked through that door coming to, to Christ's presence. We've never walked through that door without sin. You can't come through that door without sin. We said it in our, we said it in our prayer of confession this morning. We can't come to God without our sin. But we can come without broken hearts. We can come without confession. We can come without repentance. There's a constant presence in our life that wants to manipulate the Word of God to suit our own ends. I could not always say this, but the older I am, the older I become, this is my greatest fear. Sometimes I want to quit. Sometimes I do not want to come to the pulpit anymore. I don't want to preach anymore. Because I know that, that most any time I walk into this place, I can profane what is holy. You look at this and you see a crucial connection. You see an immoral irreverence. Thirdly, you see a visual truth, a visual veracity. Look at verse 45 again. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. This is not, you, you, we don't see Jesus like this. This is the only time we've seen him verbally attack. We've never seen him physically attack the world around him in his, in his ministry. He was angry. He erupted and began to throw tables and counters. Money was flying everywhere. Listen to how Mark said it. It's on your scripture sheet. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He just took over the area. What happened? It was this was a spiritual event. It's not just that Jesus became angry. 
Look at 1 Peter 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And that last sentence, he's talking about people outside the church. But he said, the judgment of God begins inside with his own people. That day, what happened? Judgment, God's judgment, came to the house of God, to the temple. We are evangelicals. We decry the ungodliness of our culture. What we see on a weekly basis, we talk to each other about what's happened this week. Did you hear what happened here? And we decry that. What Jesus is saying here is, my judgment begins in the house of God, not out there. I was raised in the country. It was seven miles to the nearest town. We had a large garage behind our house. There wasn't a neighbor right next door. You, you had to walk a quarter of a mile or half a mile to get to a neighbor's house. One the, in, in the, the, the garage had two levels, and on the upper level was my dad's study. One night, Dad came to my my room, my brother's room. We were asleep. He woke us. I was really little. And without saying anything, he said, he told us to be quiet and just come with him. He got my sister out of bed and took us down to their bedroom. There was a light on. This was at 2 or 3 in the morning. There was a light on in the garage in the upper level. There was an intruder, and he left off all the lights in the house. And I watched him. I was probably six years old, seven years old. I watched him take his marine knife, put it in his teeth, raise a window, and climb out into the darkness. I actually felt sorry for whoever was up there. I wasn't afraid for my dad. Judgment was coming. But you know, the good news was that the intruder got out before Dad got there. But you know, when when I disobeyed my father, when I came in and I'd taken the car where it was not supposed to be and someone had seen it and I would come home, and there would be a reckoning. When he discovered I'd lied to him, when he discovered something I'd done that he had told me not to do, my dad did not tell us, well, your family, you're not, you're not the intruder, you're not the people out in the world, your family, you can do whatever you want to do. No, he brought discipline and order to his house. But he never met me when I came in for reckoning. He never met me with that marine knife. He never met me with his Colt 45.
there was, in his, in his discipline, it reflected what Jesus does. See, we, we, want to, we want to say, you know, I'm safe. I've been to Calvary. My sins have been forgiven. It's done. I can go stand before God today and say, who can bring a charge against me? But Jesus doesn't say to us, go live like you want to live. It doesn't matter because you have fire insurance. Blake Neal talked about this in a wonderful study from Deuteronomy this, this last Thursday. He was talking about this very issue that Jesus cares about how his people live and there will be a reckoning with us. A crucial connection and a moral irreverence, a visual veracity. And finally, I want you to see a continual cleansing. In verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. He stayed there. He didn't just throw out the bad element and unholy influence. Look here. The true temple, Jesus was in the temple. The true altar, Jesus was in the temple. The true sacrifice was in the temple. The true holy of holies had come to his temple. And the profane was replaced with the holy. He's concerned about how we live. And when we meet him in this place, what happens? Week after week after week, what happens? He deals with our sin. How many times have you come here? Have we come here together? And we've walked away convicted about our lives. Some part of our lives. Some, something that's happening. Something that's going on in our lives. He talks to us about our prejudices. He talks to us about our gossip, our slander. He talks to us about pornography, adultery. He talks to us about our sins. That's what happens when Jesus comes to church. Look at 2 Corinthians 7. One, since we have these promises, dear friends, let's purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. What's he talking about? He's talking about not the cleansing of Calvary. That's for sure. That's done. He's talking about this cleansing that takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, through the power of the word in our lives. That's a continual cleansing week after week after week after week. James 4, 8, look at it. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking to the people of God when he says that. When I lived in Memphis and when I lived in Lexington, 
Strangely, I haven't had the problem from 60 Augusta Drive where I live. But in both of those previous houses, I had a constant, constant, constant problem with ants. They were just, I would spray them, I would do whatever, and come back in the next morning, here they were, ants, more ants. I finally found a pesticide that that someone recommended, and it worked. It worked for a month, or it worked for six weeks. And that was great. I didn't have to do things daily. When I was writing this message, I thought about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm forgiven. I've been to the cross. I know if I die today, that I can say, who can bring the charge against me? Because Christ, not because I've been good, because Christ died for me. But my sins are just like those ants. They just keep coming back. I don't go to church and walk out and say, well, I won't have to deal with sins again. In fact, the closer you get, the more you're in his word, the closer you get to Christ, the, the more you're going to have to deal with those sins. Isn't that ironic? See, the light of his holiness shines on our lives. That's why it's essential we keep coming back to this place. Because Jesus comes, this Christ who comes to the temple, he comes and he teaches and he addresses the sins of our lives. Do this. Go away. Don't come to church for a year. Just stop. Don't go to church. Where you're hearing God's word, where you're meeting with Jesus. What will your life look like after a year? It will look like you hadn't been with Jesus in a year. It will be like you haven't met with him for a year. When Jesus visits his church, when he meets with his people, when he comes to his church, oh, it's precious. We have Calvary. And we have this blessed relationship where he meets with us and he talks to us about our lives and how we live and how our families live and how our children live and how we are as husbands and how we are as wives. That's precious. And there's nothing more valuable. Our hymn.